Amen. One of the blessings of coming to church is being able to watch people. Now, one of the dangerous things about coming to church is being able to watch people. But it's a blessing to be able to see people whom you know and whom you love. You know their struggles, you know their difficulties, but to see them raise a hand in worship. Looking for a day that's coming that is better than this day. Thank the Lord. I'm glad I came to church tonight, aren't you? The first couple that I ever married as a pastor, their names were Zach and Beth. Zach was a member of the church that I pastored, and the fact that he had managed to carry on a conversation with a female just had all of us rejoicing. And he starts bringing this girl to church, and next thing you know, she's got a little piece of jewelry on, and they come to me and say, Brother Jesse, would you do our marriage? And one of the things I required then, I still require now, is that if a couple wants me to perform their wedding, is I make them go through some premarital counseling. And my goal in premarital counseling has always been, and still is, to talk them out of it. And, and I, I know how that sounds, but my theory is that if I can talk them out of it, they need to be talked out of it, right? And so my first question to them, and my first question always when I sit down with a couple is this. 51% of new marriages end in divorce. So statistically speaking, you're not going to make it. So why do you want to go through with this? Why do you want to get married? I'll add that, George. I'll work that in. And they, they, they passed that test and um, made it through another couple sessions of premarital counseling. And we had another session due. And so Amy and I took them out to supper and ate together and, and talked about all this, this marriage stuff. And remember, at this time, I had been pastoring for about 10 minutes. And I had been married for about 15. And so I'm, I'm going to give them all this wisdom that I've learned, right? And I asked them this question. And I still ask this a lot of times in premarital counseling. I ask them, what is the best piece of marriage advice that you've ever been given? That's a good question. What's the best piece of marriage advice you've ever been given? And I asked them that, and Beth, bless her heart, sweet, sweet young lady, looked at Zach, just starry-eyed, and said, my parents always taught me that you should never go to bed angry. And that's the best piece of marital advice I've ever been given. And I said to them, in all of my pastoral wisdom, I hope you're ready to stay up late. <laughs> because I hadn't been to sleep in three years. Um, because I knew that they were very idealistic about being married, like all young couples are, before they get married. But I'd also been married long enough to know that sometimes things can go south. I know that sometimes marriage can be hard. Sometimes family can be hard. Raising children can be hard. Sometimes things just don't turn out the way that we want. And I wonder tonight if you're feeling that in your family. Maybe like Beth. And by the way, they're still married, so I did something right. Um, maybe like Beth. You know, you got married with this kind of Norman Rockwell picture in your mind of the perfect 1950 sitcom family, and you thought that was going to be your experience. And maybe you've spent a lot of time on the couch. Uh, maybe you've had more conflict than you anticipated. Maybe there have been problems that you never 
could have imagined that you've had to deal with in your marriage and you're trying to figure out when did all of this go south? What went wrong? What happened? Or maybe you're on a second marriage and, and you're thinking this marriage was supposed to take care of all the things that went south in the first marriage and now things are going south again. What's the deal? What's the problem? Or maybe you're in an extended family type situation where you've got cousins or, or nieces or nephews that are robbing parents or grandparents to fund an addiction and you're thinking, why are things going south? Children raised by parents that didn't have the skills necessary to be loving and capable parents. Why, why does it go south? Well, tonight it's going to go south for Abraham. And as it goes south for Abraham, there's a lot we can learn about why it goes south for us. So turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, verse number 10, where everything goes south. That's what I want to talk to you about this evening, everything going south. Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 10. Genesis 12, 10, notice the first words of the text. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female serf servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave me an orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Verse 1 of chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. If you were to track Abraham's journey, just in Genesis chapter 12, geographically, and you would begin where he began in Ur of the Chaldees, which would be modern-day Iraq, and you were to follow his path to where he ends up in verse number 9 in what is modern-day Israel, the south part of Israel in the Negev, Abraham has traveled about 900 miles, making his way from Iraq into Israel. He's heard from the Lord, and God has come to Abraham, and he has said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to give you a family, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I am going to bless all of the families of the earth through my blessings given to you. And Abraham, in this incredible act of faith, has believed the promises of God. And because Abraham believed the promises of God, he obeyed the word of God. And Abraham journeyed forward in faith, letting the promises of God to him shape his future. And because of that, Abraham becomes, really in the Bible, becomes one of the primary case studies for what it means for us to live by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 9 says that by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, 
living with tents with Isaac, his son, Jacob, his grandson, heirs with him of the same promise. Abram has had his future defined by the promises of God. And Abraham says, I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to follow those promises wherever they lead me. And if you want a working definition of faith this evening, faith is letting the promises of God shape your future. Faith means aligning your life to what God has revealed to you. And Abraham does that. But things start to go south for Abraham. Literally and figuratively. The Bible says in verse number 9 that Abraham ends up in the southern part of Israel in this region called the Negev. And the Negev is a desert in Israel. You might think, well, it's all kind of a desert, pretty much. But this is really a desert in southern Israel. But interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for Negev is not just the word for this region, but it's also the word for south. It's the Hebrew word for south. Abraham literally is going south. He faces a famine, and he starts to move south. And instead of orienting his life around the promises of God, things start to go south as Abraham fights for control, fights for himself, takes it into his own power, and begins to organize his life based upon common sense. Y'all, what I want to tell you tonight is this. Living in the world we do, we should not be surprised when things go south. We should not be surprised in our families when things don't go the way that we plan. We should not be surprised when things beyond our control blow up without our choosing them to. We should not be surprised by that. But this passage of Scripture shows us that we must move forward in faithful obedience, trusting the promises of God. Instead of turning in on ourselves, instead of turning in to our own understanding, when nothing turns out right, we can know that God will turn up to fight for His people. We can and must move forward in faithful obedience when nothing turns out right because we know that God will turn up to take care of His people. So this story begins really with Abraham and, and nothing is turning out right. The Bible says that there is a famine in the land. Now get this, okay? Abram has heard the voice of God saying, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. And Abraham just says... Well, okay, let's go. He believes the promise of God. He pulls up the tent stakes, and he begins to move forward, trusting the God of the promise. And wouldn't you think that if God has made these promises to Abraham, if God has chosen Abraham and his family, wouldn't you think that everything should be easy from this point forward? Now, we naively want to believe that's the case, don't we? We want to believe that if we marry a Christian, that we're never going to have to deal with a husband addicted to pornography. We want to believe that if we raise our kids in church, that they're going to grow up to walk with the Lord. We really deep down want to believe that if we do all the right things and check all the right boxes and do our best to live in faith, that we're never going to have these difficulties. And yet here you see plainly that Abram was following the Lord faithfully and he still had to deal with a famine. Now, this is not a recession. This is a famine. This is not Abraham complaining because a bunch of nincompoops in Washington have made it so the price of gas is 30 cents more a gallon. This is not diapers are a little bit more expensive, a couple dollars more every box. This is not just, man, formulas getting so incredibly expensive that we've got to buy the off-brand. This is a famine. This is people having to choose which child do we let eat tonight. This is people going to bed hungry. 
and people looking at the future and saying there is no hope. This is a situation that Abraham did not choose. This is a situation that Abraham cannot change. And this is a situation that Abraham cannot control. And I want you to hear me tonight. All of our families are going to have those situations. Every one of our families, even if we are faithful to do what God has called us to do. We naively want to believe that if we walk with the Lord in faith, that we're never going to deal with these kind of situations in life that are beyond our choosing and beyond our control and beyond our ability to change. But they happen in every single life. Just think back through the Bible. We've been talking about Noah in Sunday school. Noah went on the ark with his three sons and their families, and one of those sons on that ark defiled Noah and uncovered his nakedness. Think about Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter number 1. Hannah is a godly lady of prayer who pours her heart out to the Lord, but she struggled with infertility. She could not control that. She would never have chosen that. And not only does she struggle with infertility, she has to make the best of a bad situation because her husband's married to another woman too. Later on in 1 Samuel, you find out that Samuel the prophet, the man who is the conscience of Israel, the mouthpiece of God for so many decades in Israel, that man, his sons, were told, did not walk in his ways. That happens in our families. Children that are raised to walk with the Lord, don't. Godly couples that really love each other and want the best for one another find themselves pulled apart as one spouse has to become a caregiver for an ailing parent. That happens. A husband who loves his family very much leaves work one day, kisses his wife goodbye, and he finds out as soon as he gets there that his job has been outsourced to India. Famines happen. Famines happen. But how do we respond when they happen? How do we respond when we go through these moments of lack? How do we respond when we go through these moments when our needs aren't being met? How do we respond when we have no choice but to trust God? Well, I'm going to tell you all something about God. I figured him out. Man, that's good preaching. I figured God out, y'all. And God really is going to put us over and over in situations where we have no choice but to trust Him. Where we have to choose, am I going to trust God or am I going to rely on my schemes and my common sense and what I can figure out? And what is Abraham going to do? Well, Abraham makes a choice. And Abraham makes a really, really smart choice. And Abraham's choice is to pack up and move from Canaan and go live in Egypt for a while. He probably didn't intend to stay permanently. The Bible says he went to sojourn there. So he just takes the travel trailer. He's not, you know, he's, he's just going for a while. And that's a smart decision. It's a sensible decision. It's common sense. It, 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 the math checks out because famines would have been more common in Canaan where they relied agriculturally, where they relied on the patterns of rain. But in Egypt, in Egypt, the Nile River floods every single year. And when the Nile River floods and overflows its banks, it leaves behind these, 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 these really rich silt deposits which makes fertile soil. And so on the banks of the Nile River is some of the most important and beneficial farming in the world. Egypt was a sure thing. Egypt made sense. And instead of Staying where he was at and starving, which is not a good option. Abraham says, I'm going to go where they've got grub. I'm going to go where the McDonald's is still open. I'm going to go where I know that my unborn children, he's holding on to that promise, my unborn children are going to have something to eat. This, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? 
And I don't want to read into the text anything that's not into the text. That's dangerous when you do that. But I do want you to think about what you don't see happening in this passage. What do you not see happening here? What do you not hear in this passage? You don't hear God saying, Abraham, we need to pack up and go to Egypt. You did earlier see God come to Abraham saying, Abraham, leave Ur of the Chaldees, go to the land I will show you. You did see earlier Abraham building altars and interacting with the Lord and the Lord appearing to Abraham. You don't see any of that here. And that should tell us that Abraham is choosing to act based upon his own power and based upon his own common sense. And what God often does, the reason we have these famines that happen in our lives that affect our families, often is because God wants to stretch our faith. And God wants to test our faith. And God wants us to be in these moments where we determine, am I going to trust God? And am I going to let the promises of God be more real to me than the circumstances that are around me? James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, and we never do this, but count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Be glad about it. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness do its perfect work, have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's exactly what God is doing in Abraham here. And I would wager that it's what God is doing in some of your hearts and in some of your lives right now. You're experiencing a famine. You're frustrated. You don't feel like you know what to do. And you're caught between choosing common sense in your family and trusting the Lord's promises. But I just want to remind you today, God had made promises to Abraham. Those promises will not fail Abraham. And I want you to hear from me tonight that God has made promises to you too. And while you're stuck in this moment trying to figure out what's best, God has made promises to you that will not fail. God has promised that He will supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory. God has promised that He will never leave you nor forsake you. God has promised that He will be with you to the ends of the earth. God has promised that His goodness and His mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And God has promised you, as we sang just a moment ago, that one day when the last day of this life is over, there will be a day when you see Jesus. And He takes you by the hand and He leads you into the land that He has promised you. God has promised that to you. Are you going to let His promises be more real than the famine? Is His word to you? going to be bigger than the circumstance you find yourself in tonight. Well, everything turns out wrong. But Abraham has a plan. But as Abraham executes his plan to go to Egypt, you're going to notice that Abraham starts to turn in on himself. Because Abraham's plan to go to Egypt is perfect. Plenty of food down there. Plenty of wealth. We'll make it through. But there's one problem. And Abraham is the only man in the history of the world to ever have this problem. The only one. And his problem is, his wife, she's just too beautiful. Y'all, if that's your problem, you're doing all right. All right? No man has ever thought to himself, man, my wife, she's just too good looking. That's crazy, isn't it? She's just, she's just so beautiful. Now, I know a lot of y'all, you're married to women that are too good looking for you. But Abraham says, she's just, she's just too good looking. She's too beautiful. Honey, if you're a little bit uglier, this would be a whole <laughs> But Abraham, living in the world he lived in, not the world we live in, Abraham knew how that world worked. 
And he knew that Sarah was, and, and evi- ev- y'all, I don't know. Evidently she was. She, when they get to Egypt, all eyes are on Sarah. Everybody loves Sarah. Everybody was attracted to her. So, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll find out, I guess. But Abraham knew how the world worked, that when they went to Egypt, that the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, these powerful men in Egypt, that they would be well within their legal rights and cultural expectations to off Abraham and just take Sarah. And so Abraham is afraid. And so what does Abraham do? As he gets to the border of Egypt, Abraham gets a reservation at the most romantic restaurant he can find. Candlelight. Real cloth, tablecloths. Wedge salads with blue cheese dressing. Filet mignons, cream belay for dessert. He books them a romantic hotel somewhere and they go spend the evening together, lost in their love. And at some point he says to her, you can see it right here in the text, y'all. I'm not making this up. I'm making some of it up. But (laughs) verse number 11, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And right there she's thinking, tell me more, sweetheart. Guys, this is how you talk to your wife, by the way. Trying to figure out, I don't know how to talk to my wife. We're having communication problems. What's her love language? I'm going to tell you what her love language is. Her love language is for you to tell her she's beautiful. I mean, Keith gets it. The rest of you guys, you come along. Tell her she's beautiful, man. That's what she wants to hear. I know that you are so beautiful. But in Abraham's conversation to Sarah, Abraham may be talking to Sarah but he's actually talking about himself. Did you see that? Let's read it again. Look there in verse number 11. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Abraham is talking to Sarah, but Abraham is talking about himself. Abraham in this passage is self-focused, self-reliant, and self-preserving. And if you want to get down into the theological root of every family dysfunction, you can find it right here in Genesis chapter number 12. And it is that inward turn that we have to care more about ourselves than we do other people. That is Always, always the problem. One person in the relationship, or more than one person, but at least one person in the relationship, begins to think about me more than they think about we. You see, y'all, we are sinful creatures. And we are so sinful. And this is the chief problem of our sin. We're so sinful that we think about the world in self-referencing terms. Like even if you're here tonight and you're thinking, you know, Brother Jesse, I'm really not that selfish. You can't even say those words without talking about yourself. We can't escape it. It's in all of us to think about ourselves first, to put our needs first, to put our wants first, to put our desires first, to be in tune to what we need, to be in tune to what we feel, to be in tune to what we think, to be self-reliant, to be self-preserving, to be self-centered, to be self-conscious, to be self-focused. We are creatures that are addicted to ourselves. But God's design for the family is that he would take us as individuals and put us together. And that in that togetherness, we would be drawn out of ourselves to care for somebody beyond us. 
You can see this back in Genesis chapter number 2, when God creates Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Then the man said, talking to his wife, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now that don't seem very romantic, but that's Hebrew poetry. Adam's getting it right. That's how you talk to a woman, right? Therefore, a man, the Lord says, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What a beautiful picture of the intimacy that should occur within the family, that in the family we can be naked and not ashamed. Now, that doesn't apply to every member of your family, but the principle is that you can be fully seen, that you can be fully known, vulnerable, naked, exposed, and yet not ashamed. Vulnerable and exposed, and yet loved, welcomed, wanted. That is what God's design for the family is. But we hijack that when, like Abraham, we find ourselves in situations when we care more about me, excuse me, than we do, excuse me for real, <coughs> getting all choked up about this. <coughs> I heard a preacher one time, he was preaching, he got choked like that. He said, let me get a drink of water. I got a frog in my throat. And he said, I hope he can't swim. <laughs> we get in situations like Abraham and we preserve ourselves. We want to fight for ourselves. And the people in our families, they become obstacles who get in our way or objects we use to advance ourselves. And the problems start from the very beginning, y'all. Because often we get married, we fall in love and fall in lust or whatever happens to us. And all these hormones start taking over and we care for this person deeply and we think we want to spend the rest of our life with them because this person can make me happy. This person has given me attention nobody else has given. And often, even in the very best of situations, there's kind of a selfish kernel in our love, isn't it? And then from that love, we have children. And if you want human relationships that are going to test your selfishness, have kids, have a bunch of them. God will use them to sanctify you. And then all of a sudden you've got these little people that are demanding your time, that are limiting your freedom. Like I heard Brother John say, tell one of our young dads in the church, he said, well, he's about to have his first baby. He said, well, say goodbye to any free time for the next 20 years. And that's right. <laughs> Amen. But what happens when all that goes wrong in us. When all of a sudden our spouse is not giving me what I want, right? When my kids are standing in the way of my freedom. When selfishness starts to rear its ugly head. Y'all, this is the root of all dysfunction in families. Selfishness. It's the root of all dysfunction in families. People don't have affairs because they love the other person. They have affairs because they love themselves. Often, and I know these days addiction is every one of our families, often addiction is a person who loves themselves and is trying to escape their pain. And in their trying to escape their pain, they abuse and hurt other people because they're trying to satisfy or quiet something within them. Marital conflict happens when people stop thinking about we and start thinking about me. But one of the blessings of family life the blessings of living together. And you can see this even in church life. The blessings of being together in community is that in human relationships, God draws us out of self because He shows us we can't be self-reliant. 
Because I do need other people to fill in my gaps. I do need other people to watch out my blind spots. I don't have it all figured out, and I need others, and I can't rely totally on myself. I can't be self-serving, because to really live, I have to care about other people who are outside of me. I can't be self-preserving. I can't be self-focused. I can't be self-centered and really be the man that God wants me to be, the husband and father that God wants me to be, the Christian or the friend that God wants me to be. And this is tied into the very nature of God Himself. Don't ever forget, church, that our God is one God, but our God is a family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what God does in putting human beings in relationship is He gives us the opportunity to live the way that He lives in self-giving love, where we look out for the good of other people. And we hijack that when we turn inward. And we think only about ourselves. I never, when I was in school and whatever, I, I never ran track. I didn't like to run then. And I do run now, but the only thing I'm trying to outrun now is the grave, right? But I did have some friends of mine that ran track. And so I would go to their track meets. It's not even a real sport. They just meet. They don't even have games. They just... Meet. Man, one of my friends, he was bound to determine that he was going to be the best runner that he could be. And so he started, he's like 14, he started shaving his legs. And I took from that, that any sport where a, a guy has to shave his legs to win, even if he wins, he's already lost. So I didn't have any interest in running track, but I would go to their meets and... And in, in a track meet, if you've ever been to a track meet, if you ever ran track or had kids or whatever that ran track, you go to these track meets and, you know, they have all kinds of races. They run hurdles, they run short distances, they run like the 40 meters and they have like the 100 meters and, you know, they run just, just the straight part of the track and, and then sometimes they'll make five or six laps around the track, whatever the distances are. And in most of those situations, it's just straightforward competition, isn't it? The person with the shortest shorts and the smoothest legs, who's <laughs> the fastest, that guy or that girl, whatever, they're out for themselves so that when it's over, they will stand on the podium alone. They're the best. They won. It's straightforward competition. But you also know every now and then they do a relay race. And when you have a relay race, you have a team of runners. And so you have one person maybe make a lap around the track. And then right as they come to the end of their lap, their teammate will start running alongside of them to match their pace, and they'll reach back and grab the baton. Because in that race, y'all, it's not about who's the fastest, but it's about who can run together the best. Could it be in some of our families that we've forgotten that there are people running alongside of us, that we've forgotten there are other people in the race with us, and the people in our families who are supposed to be running with us, we've turned them into our competition, and we're just trying to get ahead of them. We're trying to beat them. We're trying to look out for ourselves instead of really running alongside of one another. That's what Abraham is doing in this passage of Scripture. He's turned inward and his family starts to fracture because of it. How are you turned inward in your family? Are you selfish tonight? Just frustrated because your needs aren't being met, not saying they're not legitimate, not saying it's not a problem. But is that all you see? Frustrated because you're not understood? Frustrated because you're not happy? Maybe you shouldn't be happy. I'm not saying that. But is that all you see? Or do you see that God has put you in a situation where you can learn how to run 
with other people. But even though everything has turned out wrong with this famine, and even though Abraham has turned in on himself, when the story ends, of all things, God turns up to deliver. God turns up to deliver this family. Let's give the devil his due. Abraham was right. Sarah was good looking. And when they got to Egypt, what happened? The Egyptians did exactly what Abraham knew they would do. I'm telling y'all, she was good looking. And Pharaoh's princess, evidently, when Abraham comes into town, they, they see him and they see Sarah and they go back to Pharaoh and they report and say, Your Majesty, you are never going to believe this lady that we saw. Some guy from Canada or, or wherever he's from, he's come across, and we've never seen anything like it. And Pharaoh, being this powerful ruler that he is, says, well, I want her. Kings in that world, that was their mentality. Anything within their borders, it was theirs to claim. And so he would have had a harem, certainly many, many wives and concubines, and heaven only knows what else. And he's basically saying, I'm going to add her to my collection. And so this family, where God has promised to make them together a blessing to others, they're apart. They're apart. But while they're apart, did you notice that things start to go pretty good for Abraham, don't they? The Bible says in verse number 16 that because Pharaoh's trying to impress Abram, and he gave him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. I did some reading about that this week, and apparently camels in this time period, that was a big deal. That was like a, a treasure. To have a cup of camels meant you were somebody. And now Abraham is a somebody. But his family's falling apart. Let's be clear tonight. You can have all the camels in the world. But if there's distance between you and your wife, you don't have anything. You can have all the wealth in the world. You can have all the success in the world. But if there's distance between the people that really matter most, you're not being blessed. But when everything is flying to pieces, when the first family of faith is not together, when it seems as if God's promises cannot be kept because of disobedience and circumstance, what does God do? Well, God certainly isn't above sending a plague to Egypt. And so the Bible says that He afflicted, afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues in verse number 17. And apparently the, the word plague uh, could be something to do with a boil. And if you've ever had a boil, or a bowl in North Carolina, if you've ever had a bowl... You'll know there ain't no woman worth that. And Pharaoh figures it out, and he says, get her out of here. Get her out of here. And he calls Abram together, and he says, what have you done to me? Why did you not tell me she's your wife? Why did you say she's my sister, and I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Do you, do you see kind of the irony in Pharaoh's words? God had called Abram to be a blessing to all the nations. And now through his sin and through his disobedience, he's become a plague to the nations. Do you see how, how Abram was supposed to be a reflection of the character of God to make his God known? And now he's deceived so that the other nations say, get out of here, man, we don't want you. Abram has lost his family. Abram is violating his testimony. And yet even in the middle of that, God does not let his promises fall apart. God is still committed to this family. God is still fighting for this group of people. Isn't that good news? 
that even when like Abram, we face a famine and we think, I didn't choose this. I didn't cause this. I can't change it. I can't control it. God is still for us. Isn't it a blessing to know that even when, like Abram, we turn inward and we become selfish and we can only think about ourselves and we do damage to the people that we're supposed to be running this race together with, God is still for us. And let me say this to you. This is the best part of the whole passage, I think. The Bible says in verse 17 that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh because of Sarah. Sarah is the victim in this passage. She is pawned off by Abram. She is taken by Pharaoh. Sarah has no choice in this. She has no volitionality. She is a victim of men who are making decisions for her. But God cared for her. And y'all, I know that some of you are here this evening and your situation is like Sarah's. Well, your situation is nothing like Sarah's exactly. But it's other people. Other people that have been selfish and you've been victimized by. Other people that have sinned against you. Other people that have hurt you, a spouse who's not been faithful to you, parents who did not raise you in the way that they should have, that honored God and honored you as their child, circumstances where your children have betrayed you, any number of situations. But where's God's heart in this passage? God's heart is with Sarah. God says, I'm not going to let anything happen to that lady because I love her and I've made promises to her and I will not let her go. It doesn't matter how Abram sins against her. It doesn't matter how much Pharaoh, how much power Pharaoh thinks he has. I will not let her go. And that's what this story is really about. This story is about how God is faithful to his people even when their people are not faithful to him. That even when their marriage is not right, even when their home is out of order, even when their family is all screwed up, God is still faithful. When it seems like all of the promises God has made are just hanging by a thread. What's going to happen to God's plans? God will keep His word. God will take care of His people. God will be for our good. So that what He has promised us will absolutely come to pass. And folks, that is good news. That is good news for us because the reality is we all have famines. Those famines could look like an outsourced job. Those famines could look like a child with any number of health problems, those famines could look like, you name it, the economy we live in. The famine could look like our own health issues. We all have these famines, but God has still said He's for our good. We all, like Abraham, become selfish and self-centered and self-reliant and self-preserving, but God has still said, I'm for your good. And what we should see in this passage of Scripture is that it is God's faithfulness that is going to pull Abraham out of his self-reliance. That when we realize our God really is faithful to us, we don't have to rely on ourselves. We can rely on Him. We don't have to defend ourselves because He will defend us. We don't have to make it all make sense because God's wisdom, He will be the one that makes it all work out in the end. And friends, our God has been faithful to us time and time and time again. He will be faithful to us in the future because God kept His word to Abram. And get this, y'all, get this, in God keeping his word to Abram to say, I will bless you and bless the nations through you and I will make you great. That was all part of God's plan to get to Bethlehem and to get to Calvary so that God could bless you in Abraham. This is God in this passage taking care of you. God is taking care of you back here in Egypt in Genesis chapter number 12. And that God who took care of you back then and that God who took care of you at Calvary, that God is going to keep taking care of you.
And when we see that, when we see that, man, that changes everything. Because then finally we are able to love people well, serve with them, just live with them, put up with them, be patient with them. Because it's not all about us. Alan Ross, in his commentary on this passage, says that this deception, Abraham's lie, is in no way condoned by the deliverance that embarrassed it. This deception is in no way condoned by the deliverance that embarrassed it. What that means is that you should not read this passage and think, well, Abraham lied and everything worked out okay, so it doesn't matter what I do, it's all going to work out in the end. No, there are consequences for Abraham's choice. And you'll see some of them, Lord willing, next week in Genesis 13. You know the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. But do you know why Lot started to move towards Sodom? The Bible says right there in the next chapter in Genesis 13 that Lot started to move towards Sodom because Sodom looked like Egypt. It looked productive. It looked fertile. Where did Lot, Abram's nephew, learn to think that way? You know the story of Abraham and Hagar. We'll get there, and it's not going to be pretty when we do. Where did Hagar come from? She was an Egyptian. There were consequences to this. You should not read this passage and think, well, everything will turn out all right. No, but you should read this passage and realize that God's faithfulness to Abraham, as Dr. Ross says, embarrasses Abraham's unfaithfulness. It embarrasses it that God is so much better to Abraham than Abraham deserves. And when we see that, man, we should be so embarrassed of our faithlessness, so embarrassed of our selfishness, so embarrassed of this inward bent we have to make everything about us when God is so good and God is so kind. Do you have any family trouble tonight? Well, you're not married to your half-sister. I hope. You're not threatened by a powerful king, I'm sure. I hope you're not lying to pawn your wife off to save your life. But I know some of y'all are in a famine. Circumstances beyond you, and you're trying to figure out, do I trust my schemes and my common sense, or do I obey God and trust Him? I do know you're selfish because I know people and I know me and I'm selfish. And I know that I have an enemy that wants to hack into my natural selfishness. To steal my family, to kill our happiness, and to destroy us altogether. I know that's how he works. I want to remind you today that our God is for his people. You're not fighting for your family alone in the middle of your famine. God is fighting for you, and God is faithful. Can we have an invitation real quick tonight? Let's stand together. Let's bow our heads right now, if, you, if we could. I, I just want to ask you, and I, I know we all have plenty to eat, but as you've heard this story tonight, how many of you might just raise your hand and say, Brother Jesse, pray for our family because we're in the middle of a famine. I see hands all over the building going up. We're in the middle of a famine. We didn't choose it. We don't want it. This is where we are. But how many of you would lift your hand just in faith and say, Lord, before you tonight, I don't want to rely on my common sense. But I want to go where you lead and do what you want me to do. Would you put your hand up? 
How many of you would honestly say, Brother Jesse, I'm selfish. And I've made things in my family about me. Yeah, there may be a famine, maybe there's problems, maybe the other person, I get that. I'm selfish. I'm selfish. And I need the Lord to pull me out of it. Let me pray for us tonight. And if you need to come, the altar's open. Lay it before Him. We have a God who is not selfish. We have a God who is not selfish. And His lavish grace pulls us out of that and takes us through all of our famines. Our Heavenly Father, God, we read this passage of Scripture and on the one hand, we want to say, Lord, we could never. Lord, on the other hand, we have to say, Lord, that's us. We've all been here. We've all been in famines. We've all been selfish. Some are like Sarah and they've been victimized by other people's selfishness. God, whatever the specific needs, as different as they are from Abraham's, Lord, we know that you are our God. You are faithful. I pray that your faithfulness to us would draw us out of our faithfulness to ourselves. I pray you would do it, Lord, as you fight for our families. Help us to respond now in Jesus' name. And amen. I'm going to invite you tonight, if you need to, to come and say, Lord, I've been selfish. And I need you to change me. Lord, I'm in a famine. And I don't know how I'm going to feed my kids. I don't know how we're going to make it. But Lord, I'm trusting you to feed me. Lord, I've been railroaded by the people who should have taken care of me but didn't. Lord, I just need to hear the reminder again that you care about me like you cared about Sarah. We'll give you a minute to respond. If you need to come, the altar's open.